Greetings and welcome to the Pure Report. I'm your host, Rob Ludeman. It's time to bring the orange yet again with one of my favorite people to talk to, VP of Emerging Technology, Sean Rosemarin from Canada. Sean, welcome back. Thank you very much, Rob. It's a pleasure to be here. I can't believe we are already in March 31st, almost April. Yes, we are hitting April. Um, any good stories? I, I always like going back to the bear story that you seem like there's always something fun that happened. I know your kids were in camp recently too, and you had to kind of navigate that. Any any good, interesting stories up front? Yeah, so I mean, look, we're nearing the end of ski season. Uh, obviously, a uh, big ski nation up here in Vancouver. Uh, I could tell you the biggest news this, uh, this year was the uh, unstable snowpack. Um, got a lot of, of rain in early December, built a nice, uh, very hard crust on the top of them, on the top of the mountain and all this wonderful snow fell on top of it. Uh, but wasn't a great year for backcountry. Uh, a lot of avalanche danger, uh, but a great opportunity to teach my kids about snow safety and, uh, you know, cut out some of the snowpack, show them where the weak layers were. Uh, they, they found it fascinating. No, really interesting and, and relevant. I can connect to that because late February, I met up with some friends in Vegas and we drove up to Zion and Zion National Park, just, just gorgeous, absolutely beautiful, but it snowed. And we thought that was a normal thing. And the locals said, actually, it does not really, you would think it snows here, but we're in the middle of a desert, right? This is desert climate, but we did this hike up, up a trail called Angel's Landing, which gets really precarious up at the top. But throughout that, we were dealing with that layer of ice that you talk about with some fresh powder on top. And of course we didn't have the crampons for the shoes because we didn't prepare or plan ahead. So it got a little bit tenuous at times, a little bit slippery on some of the switchbacks, but uh, I think, I think a couple of us only fell once and it was not a, a fall that uh, took us all the way down the mountain, just, just straight onto the behind, which, which was not a bad thing. <laughs> I can tell you, I mean, doing backcountry, you really learn to appreciate the engineering behind a chairlift. Uh, they like to, you like to say we work for our turns, um, but you know, in the backcountry, it can take you an hour, an hour and a half just to get up one pitch that you can then ski down in, oh, I don't know, 15, 25 seconds. Um, and so if you think of, you know, what skiing was maybe before chairlifts and how hard those guys worked to earn their turns, uh, as we call it, uh, I know my kids now appreciate a chairlift much more, uh, having hiked up just a single run, uh, and seeing how much work it was. Uh, so yeah, it's been, uh, you know, it's been, a, it's been a great winter. I would say the most, uh, inspiring thing is the world, uh, at this point, uh, is starting to reopen. I've been able to yes. get on an airplane. I've been able to go down to the U S uh, I was actually able to go out with the family out to Hawaii and get some, a little bit of rest and relaxation, uh, which we hadn't been able to get anywhere for close to two, two plus years. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, hopefully this continues. I'm a, I'm a social animal. I love to be out there in person and, uh, you know, 3d life or what they call, what is it? IRL Rob in IRL it's IRL. I think we're too old to use IRL, but, uh, but I'll check with my 15 year old tonight if that's the, the right thing. No, I just I totally agree. I just came back from Seattle where we're doing some, some partner events and connecting and just, it, you know, a to to see the partners in person and shake a hand and and talk to them about what we're doing with Pure and how we can help, but b just to see the other Puritans there. I mean, people I've worked with for two years that I've I've not met in person. Our own JD, who does a lot on the podcast here, finally got to hang out with him. He's he's even more gregarious and 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 larger larger in life and full of personality and fun uh, in person. So so that was a blast. But it also you know good segue brings up something we talked about the last time we were on back in uh, at the end of the year when we talked about 
predictions, right? You're looking at predictions for end of year. And I always love that episode. So great plug. If you want to go back and hear Sean kind of wax poetically about uh, all the different things he thinks are coming in the next calendar year and beyond, but one of them is hybrid work. So you acknowledge, Hey, you're getting out. There's some travel. We're all doing things. We're sort of on hold here at pure, although that may change and they're inviting us back in the office voluntarily, but relative to hybrid work, what are some of those implications now that you're seeing relative to, to security, to access points? Uh, what's going on in that space? Yeah, so let's start with the let's start with a human part of it. I mean, I think as as individuals, we're now trying to figure out how to um, evolve the way we work into this new hybrid style. Uh, in most cases. Uh, it's no longer remote work. It's not like I couldn't find my way into the office, so I'm going to have some sort of secondary or tertiary way to access half the material and be part of half the conversation. The expectation now for people is if you're working remotely, you are as much part of the meeting as you were in the last two years, which means as things start to open up, people don't want to be back to the stigma of I'm the one person on the Zoom that can't really connect well and can't ask a question. And so there's an onus to continue that sort of collaborative inclusion. But in addition, I think people have to rethink their schedules. I'll tell you, for me, it's really been about rethinking my schedule. If I'm at home and I'm working remotely, that day should really be around remote-like activities. It might be enablement. It might be catching up on proposals. It might be doing some of the work that I have to do that's largely independent uh, or maybe collaborating with, with some people who are in other geographies that I can't meet in the same office. But conversely, when I'm in the office, I should be focusing that day around the people that are in the office that I want to speak to in person. Because I can tell you, like, you still see these sort of like weird things that happen. Like you walk by a meeting room, you see someone who's taken that room for the day. They're in the office, but they're on Zooms all day. Well, I mean, you know, carbon footprint aside, why did you go to the office? The whole point of going to the office was to meet people, see people, um, you know, in some cases, embrace people, look at what's going on, really collaborate on what's going on in the world around you. And I think we need to take more advantage of this in real life moments to do in real life things. And also know that we have now a great opportunity to get focus time um, by using the power of remote work technology. Now, to your point around security, because I know we will get here, I can only imagine for the CISOs around the world, what kind of, um, you know, I would say confusion and issues have arised from all this remote working. I mean, we were talking about it earlier, but I'll just bring it up here. I mean, even the simple act of me logging in via VPN from home and my corporate system needing to now recognize that whatever my ISP was that I was connecting through at home, that's now connecting through the VPN is actually telling peer storage that I'm logging in from Montana. I live in Vancouver. Why is it pinging Montana? I'd have to go look at the bit traffic to decipher that. But you can imagine that's just one small aspect of the kind of certainty the companies used to have around whether that was your actual employee and whether they were actually logging in. And you can imagine it's now put the attack vector, the amount of risk out there of people's uh, computers and corporate information getting not only exposed, but open to encryption much, much higher than ever before. 
And as well, I think you're seeing, I mean, we've seen some recent surveys relative to the investment of what's going on. And it's always been security, right? Security's always had the biggest level of investment from an IT perspective. But the one that has really crept up the list and not even crept has really, you know, escalated up the list has been analytics and log analytics. And that was something I was talking to these partners with on, on Tuesday when I was up in Seattle for this partner event. We got to the analytics part of the solution section. I said, look, look, everybody. This is the area where the highest percentage of IT funding is going into, and and second on the list is security, and they're really starting to dovetail and weave together, right? When you look at the security operations analytics piece and what Splunk and Elastic and others are doing in that space with just the vast amount of log data that's being collected and analyzed, but it's all intertwined into one kind of space. So we we talk a ton about ransomware, and we're going to get to that as well. But when you're having these conversations as you get out in person or on Zoom, what is what is this kind of marriage now that you're seeing where these these vectors are crossing? And what does that mean going forward? Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic. So, you know, <clears throat> what I would tell you is the, the, the business of what they call SIEM or security incident and event management continues to grow. And the concept is I can put as many controls in place as I want. But here's the challenge. If I put too many controls in place and I make it too hard to connect to the network and I make it too kludgy for my users to actually gain access to resources, then they won't be able to work effectively. And the productivity drag on the organization will make it untenable to operate or operate remotely. So in order to open up and give people a little bit more flexibility to connect, um, I now have to look at other ways to secure the organization. And that's where security incident event management has come in, which basically says, okay, Rob Ludeman, for instance, is trying to connect. And if I can connect enough data points as to what Rob does after he connects, I can start to connect the dots on whether or not Rob is connected to systems he normally connects to. Rob is connected from places he's normally connected to. I can start to look at things like Rob's calendar says he's on vacation, yet he's connecting. Or 20 minutes ago, Rob signed on from somewhere on the other side of the world which technically, unless he's got some sort of, uh, you know, major propulsion, it's probably not possible that he could get there. And so you start to think of all these scenarios, which would actually trigger to a security system that that's probably not Rob. It might be someone with Rob's credentials and they might be valid credentials, but it's probably not the Rob that we want in and on our systems. So this has been happening for many, many years. But initially we'd look at 10 data points and we'd be ingesting logs that would tell us um, what was happening in those data points. And then 10 went to 100, and then 100 went to 1,000. And as the attack vector gets larger and larger, and as security uh, breaches get more and more sophisticated, it's the Splunk and the Elastics that are looking at these 10,000 different data points or 100,000 different data points to connect the dots. By the way, no different than your credit card system that has 90 seconds to validate a transaction, whether it approves it or doesn't approve it, and is also looking at all these logs behind the scenes while you're waiting for that transaction to go to approve to make sure that everything checks out that that's probably you using your credit card at that point in time. So this is very, very big business. And the amount of ingestion points and the amount of checks and balances continues to grow exponentially. And security is just an example of a place where, yes, CISOs are being asked to continue to increase the amount of data points they're checking while, back to my credit card example, making sure that that user gets the okay within 60 or 90 seconds. Because if it goes any longer than that, I'm going to complain to IT that it's taken too long. And it's really interesting because you mentioned the scope of this now. And when I had Seth Kinley on a while back to just talk about 
SIEM in general, there was a really interesting term that we, we kind of went on a jag about alert fatigue, right? The notion that you get so many of these different alerts that you either become desensitized or you're just not able to process them and it kind of wears you out. So what is the key then to, to solving alert fatigue? Is it just the speed that you mentioned that you need in that 60 or 90 seconds? Is it a people problem? What is that problem then that you have to figure out? Well, it's the Goldilocks zone, right? So if you get too many false negatives, then everybody uh, thinks it's okay. And you've actually let a hacker in the, in, the, in the estate. If you get too many false positives, then it back to my credit card example, it's like telling your credit card user that the credit cards declined. And you know how annoying that is to go call Amex or call Visa and say, hey, you just declined my transaction. Can you please? I mean, that's 10 or 15 minutes out of your day. And it might actually have an impact on whether or not you choose to use that credit card the next time around. So it's finding that Goldilocks zone of not too noisy, but a noisy enough that the alerts that come in are valid. And also having a security team that can look at maybe what's the cause of the majority of that alert fatigue and just changing that algorithm slightly, right? Remember, we're connecting logs. We're trying to connect what's real life. We're trying to look at what a normal day in the life is for this individual. And unfortunately, as we've moved to remote and hybrid, normal isn't really as predictable as it used to be. I couldn't restrict it to a certain DNS. I couldn't restrict it to a certain IP range. I couldn't even restrict it to a certain MAC address because many people now at home are using their home PCs. And so I even have to look at what's going on on the PC that I'm talking to and what kind of traffic is inside the packet to know whether or not that's normal. And that's representative of what that individual would be sending, right? Headers and all the other stuff that we don't see usually within our day-to-day -day lives. Um, we, the good news is we're making progress. The good news is I can tell you that, you know, while the pandemic brought a lot of pain and suffering and expense to the world, uh, it did bring us a quantum leap forward in terms of offering remote systems that are not only safe and secure, but I think are offering a pretty good experience for folks who just cannot get to the office. Yeah. And I think the challenge is going to be as we start getting back to all the travel and the meetings and the, you know, going into brick and mortar locations, then what does that do to, you know, the, the things that have been built up over the last two, two years where it's largely been easy to see where people have been, you know, I've been sitting at the same place for two years coming in. So there's no surprise when I jump on the VPN here, but two days ago I did it from Seattle and it was like, Oh wait, you're in Seattle now. Is this really you? Right. And I got a nice alert. It was great. The system, the system worked, right. It checked in on me and, and validated that, that, that I was me, but That'll be interesting to see as we as we go forward. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit, and we're in a related vein here, but I want to go into ransomware. You had a nice uh, narrative that was published on Blocks and Files, I want to say, about a month ago or so. So we're just kind of picking it up now. Hard to arrange our time to, to get time to chat, but we know this thing isn't going away, and we talk about it quite heavily here on this program and just in general, and it is important, but any new information that you're learning and talking with folks about ransomware and what they're experiencing, uh, you know, new attack vectors, new multi-attacks. I know we, we had that. I had that on one of episodes a little while back with, with our buddy Hector Monsieger, who chats with us sometimes. But what's the latest lay of the land there when somebody gets hit or, or new things that people may want to look out for? Yeah, I would say that the, the most newsworthy thing I've seen in the last few days was uh, Splunk actually put out a really, really nice article. Uh, it, was taught, it, was, it was something to the tune of gone in 60 seconds, but it basically talked about the speed of encryption. And so just as, as our security algorithms and our security incident event management systems have gotten more sophisticated, the cost of uh, ransomware toolkits, 
or root kits that you could actually go and buy on the dark web to go and yep. build your ransomware attack. In fact, some of them are even offered as a service. Uh, those are getting more sophisticated. But one of the areas of sophistication is how quickly the data can be encrypted. So if you think back to how quickly do you discover the outage and at what period of uh, encryption is the system currently at, it's getting faster and faster. Uh, I'll point you to the, to the Splunk study, but I mean, I think it was basically being able to consume and translate volumes, uh, volumes of data in minutes. And so your entire volume is now encrypted. Um, I would also say because of these rootkits, it's gotten easier and easier to launch an account, uh, an attack. In fact, some of the attacks just in the last little while on very, very large, sophisticated software packages uh, are being tied back to 14-year-old kids, 15-year-old kids, 16-year-old kids, putting these attacks together in their parents' basement, uh, probably due to some form of Zoom fatigue from remote schooling or whatnot. Right. But access to the tools and the amount of threats continues to rise. I mean, it's interesting because at the top, I'd say organizations are doing a good job of patching and continuing to get more sophisticated, but the attacks continue to rise. And so what we're really seeing, Rob, is more and more of those attacks um, holistically are getting through as a percentage. And when they're getting through, uh, I hate to say it, I know Andrew Miller's talked about it a few on your other episodes. We do get calls from customers on a regular basis who say, help us. We've been hit by a cyber attack. It got through our perimeter. It got through our security technologies. We now need to look at, you know, uh, what the dwell time was, what was impacted and how to proceed forward. Um, and by the way, Rob, I, I have to talk about it. I mean, Google acquiring Mandiant for $5 billion. Mandiant being the, the white ops organization that comes in post ransomware or cyber attack. I mean, that's just proof that anything to do with delivering key applications via the cloud or in the data center, uh, security has got to be intrinsic and security has got a big piece of what we do both at the perimeter, but also what we do when an attack is found uh, or a, um, uh, a bug is exploited. What's your advice then that company, I mean, obviously it's, it's, again, we know it's a, a, when, not an if type of thing, but there are a set, and I know Andy Stone and you've been talking about these things, like what, what are the things that we can advise people to look into pre-attack? What upfront can they strengthen? You just mentioned patching, right? That's obviously a great, you know, stay on the latest patches, please. That, that makes a lot of sense, but what are those pre things? We know we're here to help right? When the attack happens and, and we can talk a little bit in a little bit about safe mode and, and some of the other mitigation strategies that, that we offer as, as part of the product line, which is fantastic. But when we go in, we're advising, right? We're, we're not trying to sell something necessarily. It's like, we want to help you. We're not ambulance chasing. What, what are some of those things that we can talk about pre and even maybe during that can help limit the impact? Yeah. So obviously, uh, you know, let's, let's kind of take a, a, um, a bit of a base level view at this. Uh, when you go through an airport and the people who are in the airport checking for security, I don't know if you've ever been part of this, Rob, you travel as much as I do, but on one occasion, I actually went through and the person after me, I was watching the x-ray because that's what we do when we go through security, we watch the x-ray and you could actually see there was a gun in the bag. Oh, wow. Okay. And I'm, I'm a little bit obviously, you know, caught off guard that that's happening. And so I look at the security guy who goes, uh, yeah, don't worry. That's part of our test. We do random bags throughout the day just to make oh. sure that our people who are checking the x-ray are actually looking at what's going on. Um, if you think about, you know, in the world of IT, you've got Netflix who runs a, a program called Chaos Monkey, who essentially they will fail things uh, automatically through the month. They will actually throw failures in intentionally to make sure that their IT team stays on top of what's happening. 
And I have seen a growing desire in the marketplace for customers more and more to actually insert security threats into their environment. Not just, you know, does Rob click on that link in that email when he shouldn't because it was phishing, but actually looking at um, purported white hats who come in like Hector and actually look at more and more of the pen testing. I think that's essential. Remember the, the threat most of the time here is not going to come from physical. It's, it's less likely someone who's in your building and gotten through your, your, your um, uh, Proxima system. It's more likely someone who is coming in virtually uh, and most likely on the back of, uh, you know, verified confirmed uh, credentials. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, we've all changed our passwords, but more and more, you know, whether people wrote it down on a post-it note or whether they used a password keeper or whether or not they were just careless in terms of where that credential was kept, that's more and more what's happening. So I think, you know, at the very basics, having your network security, having your, um, you know, uh, intrusion detection systems, having your uh, log analytics to look at what's happening across your traffic, but keeping your teams fresh keeping your teams fresh to put inserting some of those risks in so that um, it's not such a surprise when it happens. It becomes a regular muscle memory. Hmm. The other thing though, Rob, is really thinking about um, what would happen. What is your, if you had to deal with an event, what steps would you take as a company? And you know, Rob, 21 years ago, 22 years ago, we all did this for Y2K. We had full playbooks. Yeah. What would happen right. in the event of January 1st, at 1201, if the systems didn't come up? If I was a CIO in this day and age, I would have a playbook that says, here's our ransomware playbook. Here's our cyber attack playbook. Here's exactly what we're going to do. Here's exactly what everybody's function is. Here's how long it's going to take us to recover in these scenarios. And here's how much money we're going to potentially lose uh, in the process. And many organizations and many boards have asked for that. But I just think that's good hygiene at this point in time. Yeah, I'm a big sports fan of many different sports and what you're talking about and articulating sounds just a lot like, you know, an American football team or something like you're going through a workout, right? You're doing the drills, you're doing the planning, you're doing the what if, what if the defender goes this way, this is how we go. And, and you're just, you're architecting out, right? It's the, it's the whole playbook for the team. Really interesting. I, I don't think we've had that on another episode of the actual insertion, right? Of, a, of attacks, of the, of the tests, right? That we've gotten to that point where actual attacks are being put in by friendlies uh, internally to see what actually would happen. Like, what would the outcome be? How do we handle sure. it? And, and it extends. I mean, the interesting thing is, as we look more and more to a cloud architecture, multi-cloud architecture, I mean, you think about the app, the, the outage uh, that just happened with, uh, you know, I'll say one of the major app stores and their services over the last couple of weeks. Uh, it was a DNS entry. It was a DNS outage. It wasn't a cyber attack. It wasn't a ransomware attack. But ultimately, every service went down because there was no mitigation to move DNS services in the event of a failure. Those are the type of things that as a network team and a security team, we have to look at some of the learnings of places like Netflix and say, hey, how can we use a system like Chaos Monkey to keep our teams fresh, that stuff's going to fail, so that they get so good at handling failures or handling intrusions or handling uh, these sort of incidents that people don't panic. It just yeah. becomes muscle memory on how we handle it and the business keeps operating. It becomes second nature. And again, really dumb analogy because that's what I do in, in hosting this program. But growing up in California, about every month, they did an earthquake drill and they stuck us under our desks and we put our hands behind our behind our heads because shards of glass tend to fly from windows when they break and, and go into you. And I want to say I was in my, maybe my forties. It wasn't, it was in the last 10 years. And we had a, a decent shaker here and I was out at a restaurant. 
that was 30, 40 years later, after all those drills, I hopped under the table at the restaurant and, and put my hands under and people were looking at me and, you know, I had a, a couple from Iowa after go, what just happened? And what were you doing under the table? And then I pointed up and there was this big giant, probably 500 pound, you know, chandelier that was shaking back and forth at this Mexican restaurant. And I said, that's why I was under the table. So anyway, long-winded story that's maybe not as relevant, but to, to hammer home, once you get the muscle memory with, with the security analysts and the IT teams, if they've practiced it enough, you move quickly, you get things back online, or you, you keep an attack from happening uh, altogether. Um, yeah, and, and, and it's interesting. I mean, this cat and mouse game is going to go on for the next, uh, for, the, for the foreseeable future. I mean, if you think about how many devices you're now uh, carrying with you that are smart devices, I mean, your phone, your watch, uh, I don't think it's beyond reason that at some point we'll have contact lenses or some sort of, of glasses or whatnot that will carry uh, more and more information back and forth. The attack vector gets larger, the amount of devices gets larger, but we're going to need that kind of connectivity to deliver the experience, this new digital experience, this crossover of our physical and digital world or what some are calling the metaverse. Mm -hmm. um, that's going to be predicated on the back of all these connected devices. So we need to mature our security posture and the way in which we're viewing um, our security world uh, to get to this promised land of, of the next digital world. Uh, and I, I think, you know, um, what is it? I mean, continue to practice, 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 practice. And uh, the teams that are out there doing it are fully expecting that they will get hit. They're fully expecting that a, um, a criminal will come into the wall of the organization and they're fully expecting that volumes of data will be encrypted on critical applications and they're planning for it. Mm -hmm. And if you're not, you're exposed. So let's go back to when we get that phone call, right? From somebody that unfortunately has been hit and they need help, right? What, what do you go in and talk about? What are you excited to share with them despite their challenging situation about what we've invested in technologically with Pure. And obviously we're not going right in with the, here's your solution. You got to ask some questions and, and where are you? What's the critical things for your business that we need to get back online? But when you go in and talk about, hey, what do we have in Flashblade? What do we have in C? What solutions that we've built with various partners that, that add value, right? Because it's always one plus one equals three when we're dealing with a Veeam or a Commvault or a Cohesity Flash Recover. And we're doing a lot with Veritas and Rubrik right now. And yes, it is all about core backup, but increasingly, of course, we know it's about restore and it's restore in the context of your business is offline or this critical data is encrypted. How can we help? Yeah. So, so just to fill in a little bit of gap there. So it typically happens is you'll recognize you have a ransomware attack or a cyber attack because, you know, some sort of cute video will come up when someone tries to log into a system or an email will be sent or a phone call will be made by a very professional individual that says, we have your data. Yeah. We've seen this with some very high profile companies who basically said, we have your volume, it's encrypted, it's no longer accessible to you, but if we do not get paid this amount of ransom by this date, we'll either delete it, we'll keep it encrypted, or we'll start to release pieces of it in the case of source code to some of the companies who are attacked if we don't see any of that uh, money coming our way. And obviously most of the money is delivered in some form of, of Bitcoin uh, or uh, digital currency, uh, which is which is obviously a, a completely different dimension than we had, you know, decades ago with what was it, suitcases of unmarked bills? Suitcases, uh, yes, guys jumping off airplanes with suitcases, right? You know. Yeah. So you you know you're attacked. First thing you do is call your insurance company. Insurance company says because most of these companies have invested in cyber insurance that will cover them uh, and and help them through this process. 
And the insurance companies uh, will then engage an expert, an expert uh, white hat organization to come in and actually see where did they get in? What did they have access to? Uh, where are the root kits in the environment? Because the first thing you want to know is before you do anything to clean it, you want to make sure that you've gotten rid of all of the potential dormant uh, code bases uh, that might be dwelling in your environment that have not been um, uh, activated yet, right? Rob, we have seen some customers who've raced in, recovered, and then 30 days later got hit with the exact same piece of ransomware because they either didn't patch or they had another dwelling uh, vector that was not dealt with. It was lingering, yeah. So typically when these companies come in, uh, they're going to understand what was hit. Where we are helping customers is to say, okay, of the volumes that were encrypted, of the volumes that now need to be recovered, how far back can we go? What's the recovery point objective? And how long do we have to recover? How long can this system be down? Now, it's easy to say, well, I want to lose no data and I want to be up immediately, but there's a cost for protecting yourself to that level. So typically... You know, for a real line transaction system, if you're a bank, you can't lose a whole lot of, uh, of, of transactions. I mean, you would essentially be deleting out or changing money transfer that may have happened just prior to that. And so your RPO would be near zero to zero. Recovery time, if you're a business that operates nine to five, you're probably okay. As long as we're up in the next few days, we should be okay. Or if we can even process transactions in a different way or on a different system, might not be as fast, but we're okay. But there are some organizations, and you think about just a critical industry like defense or healthcare, like we need to be up right away. We either have a civilian risk, or we have a health risk, or a life risk, or a major financial risk, and our RTO needs to be immediate. And that's where we step in, and the first thing we look at is, okay, what data was impacted? How big were those volumes? Were they, did you have an immutable or non-encryptable uh, non backup that was put there? Uh, that was saved from your backup uh, software? And do we have the ability to now either leveraging snaps or leveraging rapid restore, be able to bring that data back uh, within the required recovery time objective? Otherwise, you're going to have to go tell your board or you're going to have to tell the SEC that you have a significant event, uh, that data was compromised, uh, and that you're not going to be up and running for the next little while, which would be considered material information. And if you're a public company, there's implications for that as well. That's right. That's right. Yeah. It has huge ramifications. And it's one of those things that it's always curious to me when you do see reports of ransomware attacks, that's usually because it's something that has become material. Cause I, I think everybody's getting attacked and nobody's really talking about it. Right. It's kind of a, a little secret. Nobody wants it to be known that it actually happened to them, but it's happening a lot more than we actually hear publicly, you know, in the media. Well, yeah, and it's, it's interesting because, you know, just bringing new dimensions to this, what we've seen lately is social media is actually playing a big part in it because the ransomware attackers will use social media to tell the world that they've attacked this organization. And so the ability to get that news out faster. And when they release the source code or they release parts of that data, they actually capture screenshots to show that not only did they say they did it, but they've now got a video to prove that they're inside that system and they have access to that data. Um, it has definitely 100% uh, changed, um, changed the way, the way in which all of this is being communicated. Well, then there's a, there's a tax then, because if you're now doing excessive backups and you're doing mitigation, you know, you're adding a lot more to the back end. kind of the final thing I wanted to have you riff on a little bit was just the notion of data reuse, right? We had, we had ESG analyst on Christoph Bertrand. I think I, you know, I met with him a couple of years ago and we did a pod, but it was all around, and this was really before the ransomware thing fully blew up. 
and security in that space. But we talked about data reuse, right? And got onto the, to the idea of a, of a data hub, right? And if you're doing all these backups and you have all this data sitting in neutral, can you do some other things with it, right? Can you run simulations against it? Can you do training models against unstructured? Can you do some AI things? Can you do, you know, log analysis? So is there a hidden benefit when you're doing all this extra backup work and keeping snaps or keeping copies? Can you then take that data and actually do something useful so that you're not just sitting with a pile of backups and, and, and now actually add something to the business despite this challenging situation you're in? Yeah, so let me let me connect the dots a little bit for you yeah. on that. And what I'd say, like what you're referring to here is, is the concept of data hub coming to life. And I think when you had Christoph on, it was roughly two years ago. Yep. Uh, I think he touched on that this was the future, right? That organizations were going to be in a position to reuse their data um, and better kind of break down silos and be able to kind of get to some of these projects that were deep in their data that they couldn't get to before. So let's start it at a very basic level. Look, I run the emerging technology solutions business here at Pure Storage. Uh, you know, roughly five or six years ago, we brought a new product into Pure Storage called Flashblade, um, which has since you know eclipsed a billion dollars in overall revenue. Significant, fast-growing area for us. We did not build Flashblade to help customers rapidly restore data. Yeah, it wasn't the intended purpose. We needed to build a next generation multi-dimensional performance box that basically blew out the ability for uh, individual data sets to be read and written at speeds uh, in terms of low latency and performance that had never been seen before. We also needed the ability to scale out to levels uh, and ingestion and processing of gigabits per second that had never even been brought to market. Of course, this was built for uh, log analytics, for AI, for ML, for transforming enterprise imaging and healthcare, for delivering simulations across electronic design automation and semiconductor um, manufacturing. But as the, as the risk of um, cyber attacks and ransomware got larger and larger, we saw customers who needed to restore massive volumes of backup data at speeds 50 to 100 times faster than they could get from their traditional purpose-built backup appliances. And Flashblade filled that niche for them. And by the way, those customers are extremely satisfied with how quickly they're able to restore that data. In many cases, it is their mitigation strategy from ransomware or recovering rapidly from ransomware. But here's the other thing, Rob, to your earlier point. We've also had clients who've seen the power of Flashblade in the basis of rapid restore and said, wow, when we look at Pier 1 and we look at the kind of ingestion we're getting, we look at the kind of low latency we're getting, and we see the read writes for file and object, and we start to think about how we could start to repurpose some of our S3 workloads that are sitting in the cloud that maybe have to run in the data center, but how some of our streaming workloads that are running on file and SMB or NFS, how we could accelerate those. And it's a natural place to say, well, we've already seen the simplicity. We've already seen the performance at scale from Flashblade to support our rapid restore environment. We're going to take our analytics workloads there as well. And it's actually been a really interesting dynamic to see clients be able to eliminate a lot of these traditional silos that they had and proprietary hardware for research, proprietary hardware for unstructured data, and actually start to consolidate all of that unified fast file and object directly onto Flashblade. Um, it is, I mean, it is essentially bringing that data hub message from Christoph to life. And I think it does present an avenue in the future of, okay, now that I've got these data sets, and they're consolidated on this platform, not only can I back up and protect them more effectively, 
Can I start to look at governance? Can I start to look at compliance? Can I start to look at reuse? Um, and that, that's, that's where the stuff gets really, really interesting. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I love how the, the architecture of Flashblade really broke down some of the silos that were just historical, right? And, you know, we have this whole thing, enterprise for all, which is a little bit more on the block side, but talking about how the legacy architectures can't keep up. And we're really seeing the same thing here. And I'm always tickled when I see, you know, customer public win reports or other things that we see internally where there's a combination, right? It's, well, we, we, we were trying to solve a rapid restore problem, but then the light bulb went on and we realized, oh, we have all this other stuff that's sitting on DAS or that's, you know, that's on a PBBA. And wow, this is one platform where it doesn't matter, right? It's, it's all there, the same access, the multidimensional performance, the parallelism, the scale, it, 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 it you know, it, it is the right fit for those unified fast file and object workloads. It, you know, well, like let, let, let's pull on that a little bit. So we talked yeah. earlier about security incident event management. And we see more and more of these data pipelines where we have traditional data lakes or lake houses or data warehouses, whatever term you want to use. But a lot of those you know, architectures have been built on this premise of hot data and cold data. Right. So stuff you don't need you put in cold, the stuff you need you need in hot. <clears throat> and you know, if you're working in a healthcare organization where the last 90 days of patient records need to be kept hot and everything else is an archive because you have to keep it for compliance, I get it, that works. But when you start to think about AI and ML and you start to think about where we're going, we actually don't know what's cold and what's hot. We're not entirely sure what findings we're going to have. And so you move from this sort of cold and hot to warm. All data is warm. All Everything data should warm. be readily accessible right. because right. I need to be able to run the queries to test the algorithms and test the hypotheses to be able to train the model and build the next generation engine. And so, you know, when we talked about uh, our work just last month and we came public with Meta around the research uh, supercluster, that's exactly it. It's about building a storage model that allows for that unified fast file and object to scale out and to deliver incredibly fast performance without the operator having to decide what's cold and what's hot. And do I have the right volumes in hot? Do I need to start migrating and moving data between silos to satisfy the needs of the engine? That's yesterday. And I think we're seeing tremendous momentum uh, in Flashblade in that particular element. And, you know, it's great to know that we're solving a real kind of boardroom issue right now with rapid restore from ransomware and that the proof of that delivery of that model uh, is also paving the way for the next generation of analytics and AI systems. Absolutely. Well, that's a good way to summarize and kind of wrap this uh, just with what you were talking about right there. Um, what are you excited about for the next couple of months? What do you got on your plate? You get, you're heading out to Accelerate? You excited yeah, for Accelerate so, this year? So Accelerate's going to be really exciting. I know from uh, listening to your last episode, we're not quite revealing where those sessions are happening yet, but I'm definitely excited. Uh, excited about the opportunity to potentially take that internationally. Uh, I'll also be traveling to the UK. So that'll be my first... Uh, Transborder trip. Fantastic. Uh, and uh, yeah, we're transitioning from ski season to mountain bike season. So uh, what can I tell you? Uh, going from, uh, from the physics of snow to the unfortunate reality, the physics of, uh, of dirt, which uh, on the body, the falls hurt a little bit more. You still have chairlifts though, right? No, I don't. I don't go mountain biking and chairlifts. You don't go, go mountain biking where the chairlifts. Okay, so this is unfortunately. Earn your turn. Earn your turns are the only way in the mountain biking world. 
Well, that's what you told me about sort of the backcountry skiing is the, you know, the investment of the time of the time up, you know, and when I do mountain biking in and around here at home, it's, you know, some great trails behind the house. And it's that two, two hours of hard work up, you know, 3000 foot vert that, that I have behind my house. Mm-hmm. And then the seven and a half minutes just screaming downhill, I guess it is supposed to be a workout, but I kind of love if the downhill lasted a little bit longer. That's the I would tell you, Rob, the smartest guys in the business five years ago, we were laughing when we saw e-mountain bikes. You'd see these guys going up because here you climb for, uh, in my bike anyways, you climb for close to an hour and 15 or an hour and 20 to get uh, roughly 20 minutes, 25 minutes down. So it's not so bad, but the e-bikers, they can get four or five turns, uh, four or five cycles in a day, whereas my legs can only give me about two. Uh, cause after you've climbed for two hours, two hours and 20 minutes, uh, there's just nothing left. So I would tell you e-mountain biking is gaining popularity. I laughed at it at first. I'm now getting to the age where, uh, that might be something I'm investing in sometime soon. For sure. Yeah. For mountain biking, I, I do still chuckle when I see the e-bikes cruising around on flat rand around here, like only, only in North America, only in the United States, could we take one of the most healthiest activities and turn it into something where you just sit and, and don't get any exercise. Right. I mean, it, it yeah, yeah well, the climbing cool. 2,500, 3,000 feet of vertical, believe me, there's a place for it. And if what you want to do is more downhill, uh, there is definitely something to be said for uh, being able to get four or five cycles in a day. Uh, so uh, yeah, good on the guys who decided to take e-biking to mountain bikes. I Where I live uh, near the mountains, uh, definitely, definitely seen the use case for it. Awesome. Hey, well, thanks for coming on today. Anything else that you want to plug out there? Anything social media, blog land that you've been doing or that you're up to? Yeah, I'd encourage folks to follow me at, at Sean Rosemarin. Uh, I do blog as often as time allows, uh, both on Pure and as well as on my LinkedIn profile. Uh, I do plan on uh, getting out on the road, seeing lots of uh, customers or partners, uh, being at events. And uh, yeah, if anybody wants to reach out, I'd love to debate any of these topics. Uh, and, uh, you know, looking forward to uh, starting to think about what, what's coming in 2023. The world is moving fast. Uh, I think it was Satya Nadella who said we saw more innovation in the last two than we expected for the next decade around the world. Uh, We now have a platform. We have a platform as a society to communicate and work more effectively than we ever have before. I'm looking forward to seeing how people jump on and and get the next level of of not just work and not just productivity, but the next level of life enjoyment from what we've been given. So thanks for the opportunity, Rob. Anytime. You're always welcome on here. I love to get your thoughts and jump into your head because I know you're always thinking about things. And if you want to follow Sean on social media, reach out to him on Twitter and look for his blogs out there. And hey, thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Pure Report. Great to have you with us for a little bit of time. I hope you enjoyed this. Please keep sending the feedback to purereport at purestorage.com. And we will keep bringing the guests like Sean on for fantastic conversation. And with that, we will wrap for Pure Storage. It's Sean Rosemary, and this is Rob Ludeman saying, don't look back, something might be gaining on you.